Welcome to a new episode of TDS Lowdown. My name is Henrik and I'll be diving into relatively controversial waters in this episode. The waters are those of robot rights and joining me today will be David Gunkel. However, instead of asking whether robots should have rights, we'll explore why this issue is so controversial. The background for this episode, then, is the debate about robot rights. Robots, some argue, either has become or can in the future become kinds of beings that are worthy of moral consideration. As social robots become increasingly capable, many are raising questions about what really separates humans from robots, for example. If you take Sophia, the robot, and assume that it's driven by cutting-edge conversational AI, for example, GPT-3, which has produced a large number of very impressive but yeah, also sometimes distressing texts, and assume also that it's kind of equipped with software that enables it to navigate the world relatively effectively, at least in restricted and closed settings. Does it make sense to ask if such a robot uh, should have rights? Whether they can be some kind of person, a natural person, a legal person, artificial person? And whether it's wrong to harm them? Is it, for example, wrong to kick the robots from Boston Dynamics, as you might have seen in videos? Or would it be wrong to set fire to Paro the seal if you just wanted to? If so, is it wrong because it harms us as humans to do such things? Is it wrong because robots uh, is some kind of property and thus destruction is waste? Or are there in fact good reasons to say that these robots are moral patients that have a right not to be harmed? For their sake, not ours. On a more pragmatic level, um, can an autonomous vehicle um, be considered a sort of legal entity? Uh, one that can be punished for the accidents uh, it causes? Perhaps an entity that can be insured so that no human is liable for the consequences of setting such a robot free on roads? For some, these questions are asked because there is genuine concern that robots may feel something, that they have non-trivial experiences. And for others, um, these are preemptive debates that they consider important for equipping us with what we need in order to devise good laws and regulations for what is coming. Some might say that uh, they do techno-philosophy, like David Chalmers, that they use, uh, they not only philosophize about technology, but they use technology to learn something about humans and our situation. For others, however, discussions about robot rights are outright harmful and should be suppressed. And that is what we focus on today. And this is why I have invited one of the key figures in this debate, so let's get going. So, as mentioned, today's guest is David Gunkel, uh, author of the book Robot Rights and numerous articles, chapters and books about the subject of robot rights, broadly understood. And not just that, however. He has written books of remixology, AI more generally, and the latest book from David that I read was The Deconstruction. Uh, he's a professor of media studies at Northern Illinois University. But not just that, he also knows the song you just heard quite well, don't you? Welcome, David. Hi, good morning. Hi. Um, so I've been wondering in preparations for this uh, episode, kind of, um, so I figured I'd just ask you, could you tell us a little bit about your disciplinary background? I suspect it's not kind of robot rights studies. What's your yeah, right. background? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah, it, it we, you know, the, the way all of us come to our research, I think, is a, 
very tortured path and it changes and evolves. And for me, a real pivotal year is around 2005, 2006. So prior to that, I'm doing my PhD in philosophy and I'm working as an application development in digital technology and media. And I got into a lot of internet studies and being appointed in digital uh, media. Um, I was working a lot on questions of digital divide, uh, virtual reality, um, the new platforms for social media, et cetera. And in the second book uh, called Thinking Otherwise, the final chapter sort of pivots and begins to look at artificial intelligence, mainly because I became interested in the technology not as a medium through which human messages pass, but as an inter interlocutor, as not an object, but a subject, mm -hmm. and how and whether the machine could be uh, submitted to a kind of subjectification uh, in the communication process. Yeah. And that got me very interested in artificial intelligence and robotics and, and things like that. And so the subsequent book I wrote, The Machine Question, was really an attempt to kind of grapple with the questions of the moral status of these entities. And so it looked at both rights and responsibilities. And naively, I thought that once I finished that book, I'd be done with this. Mm. I'd go on to something else and write different books and different articles. Uh, but it turned out this had incredible traction, especially the robot rights component of it, which I did not anticipate as having this kind of uh, interest in, you know, other uh, researchers. And so as a result of that, this subject matter has really dragged me along with it, even though I thought I'd be out of it. Mm -hmm. um, I found out that there's so much more to say, so much more to think about, so much more to discuss. And it has really called me uh, to respond to it in a way that uh, sometimes feels like it is in control, uh, as opposed to me being the, the researcher. The, the research actually uh, is the thing that drives the, uh, the apparatus here. Yeah. So that's how I got into all this. But yeah. really, my, my background is in continental philosophy and in uh, digital media application development. Hmm. Uh, and then around 2005, 2006, I pivot to this uh, interest in AI ethics and uh, robot rights in particular. Yeah, it's very interesting. My background is kind of philosophy, but a different kind of philosophy, I guess, political philosophy and more analytical philosophy than continental uh, philosophy. But I kind of uh, very much appreciate your work because I got into this in 2018, 19, I think. And then I kind of fell over your work and kind of saw that I, I was doing something that people have been doing all along and people like you. So I kind of, yeah, connected with this and the literature and kind of eventually found out what was there already. But this sort of implies that robot rights is a relatively interdisciplinary field. Uh, I come at this from a different background than you, others from law, for example, different traditions of philosophy, some from technology and robotics, a motley crew, so to speak. Kind of, um, is that a blessing or a kind of a challenge for, this, uh, for these debates we're talking about today? Yeah, I think it's a both and circumstance. Um, mm. I think it's a blessing mm. insofar as the field calls on and needs input an insight from expertise derived from the entire range of human experience and endeavor. Um, I don't think you'll find any area in which uh, we are concerned with what we do that doesn't somehow involve technology and especially smart and intelligent technologies like AI and robots. Hmm. So I think everyone has something to contribute um, to this conversation and this debate. But on the other hand, it is a challenge because the different disciplines 
obviously cultivate different institutional cultures. They recognize different investigative methodologies and they utilize often incompatible vocabularies. Mm -hmm. So each one of us that participates in these efforts and these conversations actually has some work to do to try mm -hmm. to bridge these differences. Um, it's certainly difficult, but I think it is fortunately something that is possible, especially mm -hmm. if each one of us recognizes the importance of doing this and becomes attentive to the challenges of making ourselves understood to a broader audience. Mm -hmm. uh, to put it in a kind of shorthand, um, I think really what we need right now are philosophers and poets who can write code mm -hmm. and scientists and engineers who can read Plato and make music. That sounds like a perfect kind of uh, yeah perfect starting point for this debate, and at times I, I think we're kind of doing uh, we're doing pretty good in these discussions. There are a lot of different uh, backgrounds kind of meeting and having very fruitful dialogues, and then there are some challenges as you point to, and some of these will come to later on I think because that is part of the background but not all of the background for what kind of is today's focus. But before we get into kind of the twist on the debate, which is kind of not whether or not robots should have rights. That's not the issue today, right? But it's the challenging robot rights. We're, I, I'll both be challenging it based on kind of some of the debates that are coming on. But I also say that these are challenging topics of sorts. But as a preliminary, before we get into kind of those kind of objections and those kind of controversies, uh, could you say a little bit about kind of what you see as the most important questions related to robot rights? Why you do this, for example, as we talked about in the introduction, for example, David Chalmers talks about techno philosophy, doing it to learn something about the human condition or the thinking philosophically about technology, for example. What is your kind of key yeah, interest in this? What is this motivated by? Yeah, so I think the most important question for me is this thing I call the machine question. It's mm. been kind of a guiding thread uh, in my own research in this area. And really, that involves questions like how should we fit increasingly social and seemingly intelligent artifacts into our existing moral and legal systems? Mm. So are they just things, instruments and tools that we can use, misuse, and even abuse as we see fit? Are they like other artifacts before um, you know, just a means to an end and not mm. an end in themselves? Or are they more than things, a kind of social person, another, similar to the way that we've done this with other kinds of artifacts like the corporation that we've made into a legal person to try to give them a certain status within our uh, moral, legal, and social systems? Mm. Or is it the case that AI and robots challenge us to rethink and justify this very distinction that allows us to separate all of reality into persons or things? Hmm. Might AI and robots collapse or at least challenge this other, this moral and legal ontology that has persisted at least since Roman times and invite us to think otherwise about others and other forms of otherness? Hmm. This is for me the most important question although it's arguably not a question, it's a series of questions or a cluster of questions. But this is the problematic that I've sought to define, to investigate, and to research in my own writing. Mm. And it's the research question that really guides my own engagement with this. Um, I think one of the things people often uh, say or assume rather incorrectly is that I must care about how the robot feels. Mm. I don't know if the robot feels anything, and I don't really care that much about what the robot does or does not feel. Mm. What I really care about is the integrity of our social system, the integrity and the sustainability of our moral and legal apparatuses. 
and whether or not they are morally justifiable, whether they are just, and whether they're equitable. And I'm very concerned that uh, we engage the robot rights question as a way of helping us shape our future hmm. for us, for our children, for future generations, for the planet, and for the artifact. Hmm. Yeah, that's perfect. And uh, I kind of I've written some of this, uh, some things on this as well, and we kind of uh, disagree on some details, of course. But I agree with you fully that this is kind of a worthwhile endeavor. So this is where we get into kind of the people that disagree with us on this, and this is where I'll kind of take the position of uh, challenger, if you will, inquisitor, whatever you'd like to call this, in order to explore kind of some of these arguments from the anti-robot rights crowd, because not all agree that these are good questions and not all agree that these questions should be asked at all. And that might sound kind of strange for us if we think that this is about kind of shaping sustainable human societies, right? That sounds like a good idea. But then kind of people say, no, this is kind of a really bad and hurtful, harmful agenda. So that's what we'll be getting into now. One preliminary, though, uh, because this seems to cause some confusion and controversy right from the get-go, because some seem to mix human rights into this discussion. Is this about robots getting human rights? Is this kind of, where does human rights fit into this? And kind of an article in AI and Ethics, for example, last year discussed just this, human rights for robots, right? So some right. people are discussing that as well, but uh, not necessarily us all the time today, or kind of what's your take on this? Is the human rights related to robot rights necessarily? Yeah, so as a preliminary, I think it's really important that we define and operationalize what we mean by rights. Hmm. And I think one of the points of contention or one of the points in which the debate uh, becomes uh, rather polemical is when we misunderstand each other on rights. We talked hmm. about the interdisciplinary nature of this conversation. And I think one of the things that happens often is that the folks in the legal area bring one set of ideas about rights into the conversation. The people in computer science bring another set of rights into the conversation. The people in philosophy bring another set of understandings of rights into the conversation. Mm. And therefore, we might be talking past each other and debating something that's not really common ground. So one of the challenges that I had in writing the book Robot Rights, a challenge given to me by, by my editor at MIT Press, Philip Laughlin, he said, you know, maybe you want to define rights before we get into robot rights. And I said, yeah, that's a really good idea. <laughs> um, and I thought I could knock it off in a couple paragraphs, but it turned out to take an entire chapter to really grapple with this because rights has a rather long and important history that needs to be grappled with. <laughs> but I think the best way to understand rights is by using the Hofeldian um, analysis. And uh, Wesley Hofeld, an American jurist from 1920, uh, said uh, in his own work that, you know, he found that even experienced jurists screw this up all the time. Hmm. They use rights in different senses in the same sentence, in fact. And so he said, you know, we should decompose rights into their basic sort of atomistic elements. And he said that rights are really powers, privileges, claims, and immunities that hmm. belong to an entity. And therefore, if we look at rights from that perspective, we can see that rights are just a kind of social acknowledgement a social standing that is accorded to an entity. Hmm. Um, and as a result, uh, we are not, when we say the word rights, meaning human rights. Human rights are a special bundle of powers, privileges, claims, and immunities that belong to a particular species, the human being. Hmm. But we also have rights for animals. We have rights for uh, natural objects. We have rights for uh, legal subjects like corporations. They are not identical to human rights. There might be some overlap, 
Hmm. But these are different sets or bundles of powers, privileges, claims, and immunities that are accorded to or bestowed upon these different entities. And so I think when we say robot rights, people oftentimes think we are talking human rights for robots, and we're not. Hmm. We're talking about defining a specific set of rights that would be necessary for the artifact to have in order to integrate it into our social world in a way that makes sense. Hmm. There may be some overlap with the bundle of human rights, but they're not going to be the same. And conflating these two things, I think, is where we run into trouble, because then all kinds of assumptions are made and people get triggered because how can you say human rights for robots? Not all human beings have human rights. You know, this kind of stuff is important to separate out so we don't fall down that rabbit hole and yeah. get confused by these things. Yeah, perfect. So in the following, we, um, we can kind of assume we're not talking about human rights unless we specify this. Right. So we're talking yes. about different kinds of rights. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, let's get into the challenges then. Because, first of all, we'll say that kind of uh, some people are saying that robot rights is some form of a corporate uh, power grab. And uh, this is kind of Frank Pascal, for example, who's been having some talks about this, saying that kind of these are similar to corporate rights, which are often used to dominate and harm vulnerable populations, for example. Um, so what are the dangers of this happening, of kind of robot rights provide, being used to provide corporations and the machines they make, for example, or powerful people who control the machines, for example, rights to dominate and harm other people? Is kind of because some might say that when you say that the robot should have rights, oh, that's very good for Elon Musk and his Teslas, right? They can have rights, so he won't be liable anymore. Is, is, yeah. is there kind of, that's one sort of objections, right? That this is a kind of corporate power grab. What would you say to the, those kinds of objections? So let me say first, I think it's an important thing to ask. And mm -hmm. I think it's an important matter to debate and discuss because it does have an impact, right? On our populations, uh, especially vulnerable parts of our population. Mm. Um, but let's sort it out a little bit and make sense of what's going on here. Hmm. So I'd say, first of all, corporate personhood is in fact a fact, and it has a long and storied history with both good and bad uh, outcomes. On the bad side of the ledger, the concept has in fact been abused by those in power to dominate and harm many vulnerable populations. Hmm. But on the good side, having the corporation recognized as a subject of law has also permitted human individuals and communities many times these same vulnerable populations, to bring suit against the corporation in a court of law. If the corporation wasn't recognized as a person, you could not sue um, Exxon, you could not sue Microsoft or Elon Musk's company, mm. whatever the case is. Mm. But making the corporation a subject of the law, a subject of both obligations and rights, has cut both ways. And yes, the same would be true if robots and AI are granted legal personality like a corporation, an organization, or an institution. But there's two things I think we got to keep in mind here. Number one, the way that you deal with these things is not by putting a stop to the discussion of legal personality. The way you deal with is to pursue it through a real cost-benefit analysis of the opportunities and the challenges that, is, that this development would make available to us. And the literature on the subject is already quite diverse and complicated with people sort of parsing this one way or another and coming out on one side or the other side of this debate. Mm. Also, I think it's important to distinguish rights from personhood, whether it's moral personhood or legal personhood. Typically persons, namely legal persons in the, this case of law, are subjects of rights and obligations. But there are also situations where rights can be assigned to something 
without that thing necessarily needing to be recognized as a legal person. Thomas Piotrowski calls these other kinds of legal entities non-personal subjects of law. And we can already see that this is in action with legal statutes for delivery robots. The state legislature of Pennsylvania just recently passed a state law recognizing delivery robots as pedestrians. Now, they didn't do this because they want to give legal personality to delivery robots. They did this because they got to figure out how to work with a situation where a delivery robot is in a crosswalk mm -hmm. and gets hit by a vehicle. And so by classifying these things as pedestrians, they effectively give them the right of way in the crosswalk, a right, right? It's a certain privilege, mm. but it's not the right of a person. It's mm. just a very low level recognition of a social status for the capabilities of recognizing how to sort out these complications when we have a circumstance like an accident. Mm. So obviously we want our legislatures to make these determinations and these decisions in a way that really takes our interests into account. But the only way that we can ensure that this happens, especially in a democratic society, is mm. by having the conversation, yeah. is by debating these issues and talking about these very uh, complicated matters. But you don't solve the problem by ignoring the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. So this is kind of a uh, utilitarian or kind of a pragmatic considerations regarding yeah. kind of what is necessary in order to make things work. And you've also made the argument before, I kind of just to follow up on this, is curious, and that kind of um, not uh, or making human beings or individuals rely or kind of liable for everything that an, an unpredictable machine does might stifle innovation and all these kinds of um, considerations as well, right? So that factors into this kind of whole picture of some sort of utilitarian kind of consequence analysis uh, in terms of not uh, the kind of moral capabilities of the entity, but kind of how this affects us as a society. So that's kind of the major part of this one, as you see it, that we just need to discuss and figure out all the pros and cons of doing these things. Yeah, that's exactly how the corporation became a person. Mm. We tried to grapple with the social opportunities and challenges presented to us by these human organizations mm. and the way that legal um, structures, courts and legislatures responded to these challenges is by developing this idea of legal corporate personhood. Mm. Now, it's not a perfect solution, mm. but it's a solution that does, in fact, work for a lot of our legal systems. So the question that confronts us in the face of the faceplate of the robot and the AI is, would similar kinds of decisions work for these things? Hmm. If so, how, why, what are the challenges? What are the opportunities? But I think we've got to sort this out. Hmm. I think we've actually got to have the conversation as opposed to just expecting that it's going to take care of itself. Yeah, because this is highly relevant. You might think this is kind of sci-fi. Some of the listeners might think kind of robots don't deserve rights. That's obvious. But when you get into kind of autonomous vehicles, for example, as I talked about in the introduction, that is one aspect where kind of something goes wrong. Who's responsible? Kind of uh, who has the right of way? As you talked about delivery robots, but also autonomous vehicles, right? So your kind of interest is not to definitively answer it should have these and these rights, but just saying that we need to talk about and figure out and understand these issue, issues. Yeah, I think one of the mistakes people make is they see the title of my book, Robot Rights, and they think mm. it must be an activist manifesto. Mm. Like, you know, liberate the robots. Um, <laughs> and that's not my major concern. My major concern is how do we as human beings 
utilize our best thinking in hmm. philosophy, in law, in sociology, in politics to resolve challenges that are confronting us with increasingly social and increasingly intelligent machines. And how do we best resolve questions regarding responsibility, moral, legal standing, and all these kinds of things that inevitably are going to uh, require us to have answers to this machine question. Hmm. Yeah. And then kind of the, the, to sum up kind of the first objection, then, then some would say that despite uh, these good intentions, uh, there is a chance that uh, corporations might kind of hijack this uh, whole uh, thing and kind of turn it into their own thing. But that kind of puts the pressure on us and everything else, uh, everyone else kind of to keep on having these discussions openly, I guess. Yeah, I think especially mm. in democratic, uh, you know, governance, mm. we need to be active participants in the conversation. Yeah. We should not allow the corporations to collude with our government to create laws that only represent them. Mm. Um, sure, surely corporations are persons and they do have representation um, through lobbying and other forms uh, with re regards to how laws are made. But if we just let that happen and say, well, we don't want to talk about that because that's you know, possibly something we don't want to get into, I think we're abdicating responsibility. Um, mm. As democratic participants, I think active involvement is a much better approach than mm. a kind of let's ignore the problem and hope it goes away. Yeah. Yeah, great. Uh, if we move on to kind of a second objection then, that is the, the very idea of robot rights is anti-human, that this is some sort of uh, post-human or transhumanist uh, kind of agenda in order to kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that is anti-human in general. And some, uh, I am guilty of this, I use robot rights to explore humans primarily, to explore kind of our nature and what, yeah, our societies as well, of course. And so when answering this question, uh, kind of, why uh, should not a robot have rights, for example? Uh, it's natural to look at humans and kind of see what separates us from machines. And I know you're not a big fan of kind of the capabilities approach, but kind of that's one, uh, one way of looking at it. It's a popular way of looking at it. And uh, I tend up arguing that kind of humans are, in fact, a little more than a form of machine. And that's kind of where I end up and how I end up saying that, okay, it, it's not totally unreasonable to kind of discuss the uh, subject, at least. And that's kind of like Hobbes and Lemaitre and kind of others that have discussed these things for a very long time. But this, again, relates to something I discuss in um, that I call ro uh, robotomorphy, right? Uh, because this debate could end up reducing humans to our observable actions. And if so, kind of... And so we are comparable if kind of all we, we end up with is kind of what we do. And um, when robots start doing pretty much what we do uh, without kind of us having access to what goes on inside their minds or whatever kind of thing goes on, that kind of leads to a potential problem and lessening human beings to just being machines. But there, there is more to being human, right? Some would argue. And this weird debate or exercise of talking about human rights in the literature could end up dehumanizing us, making us less than we really are. So is there any kind of hold in this sort of argument? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, so I'd say this. Robot rights is not anti-human. But it is, if anything, anti-humanist. Hmm. So what's the difference? Human is a word we use to identify a species of animal. It's the name that we've granted ourselves to give to ourselves. Although who is included in this first person plural pronoun we um, has been a rather fraught uh, decision, uh, historically speaking, and we've excluded various members of our own species in defining the human. And that's a long history there. 
Mm. Um, but it is a way in which we identify our ontological determination mm. and distinguish ourselves from other non-human animals, as we say. Humanism, by contrast, is an ideology. And it's an ideology that, at least in its European configuration, situates the human species at the top of a hierarchy where human beings grant to themselves the exclusive privilege of domination over all other entities. You can already see, if you go back to our own myths in the book of Genesis, what is Adam's main job to have dominion over everything on planet Earth given mm. to him by Yahweh and to name all the animals, right? Mm. So this human first way of thinking has been challenged by innovations in animal rights and environmental ethics. And in fact, efforts to develop an ecocentric way of thinking have sought to level the hierarchy in recognition of the fact that the human is not at the center of the universe, but only one among others. Robot rights, like animal rights and environmental ethics before it, challenges the hegemony of human exceptionalism and asks us to be more attentive to the way that we have already granted to ourselves the power and the privilege to assume that we are the measure of all things and dominate all of creation or all of reality. Now, I follow Donna Haraway here, who I think has some really good insight in her work in uh, the cyborg and post-humanism. And she says, yeah, indeed, if you challenge human exceptionalism, this can appear to be dehumanizing. Hmm. This can appear to be a way of reducing the importance of the human. But it can also appear as something that challenges an expectation we've given ourselves, a privilege we've granted ourselves, a power we've given ourselves over the rest of creation that really challenges this ideology and creates some new opportunities. So instead of dehumanizing, I would say, these alternatives challenge traditional anthropocentric assumptions hmm. and invite us to see ourselves as part of a larger whole, one that includes others and other kinds of others. Now, why is this necessary? Well, one, two good examples, climate change and the Anthropocene. Many of the environmental challenges we face right now are the result of human-first ways of thinking, ways of conceptualizing ourselves that puts everything, either naturally occurring or artificially made, at our disposal and under our domination. So instead of dehumanizing, I'd say robot rights is part of what is necessary for survival, for us, for the planet, and for the others who share this place with us. It's a way of challenging this notion of human exceptionalism that has allowed us to position ourselves in dominance over the rest of the world. Hmm. And this is very interesting. And this is where kind of, as you say, kind of environmental ethics, that's where I came from before doing technology. And that's why yeah, so I, I kind of recognize, recognize <laughs> a lot of these debates from that, right? So that's, there's a kind of shared agenda there. Going from human human rights, kind of uh, human first, we don't really, yeah, and we got earth first, and that was kind of a controversial enough movement, I guess, an interesting one, uh, but I, I don't really kind of recognize anyone saying robots first, right? So that's, we haven't really gotten there, but more of kind of, uh, yeah, broadening the perspective and decentering the human as you're talking about. And we're having some kind of academic discussions about kind of the anthropocentrism of a relational ethics, for example. So this is really interesting debate that we should discuss at a later point. And that would be really good. But that, that is an interesting point and something I see in some of the debates as well, because sometimes they end up not with pure disagreement, but we kind of agreeing to disagree where some people say that, yes, I am a humanist. So that's where I come from and that's where I stand and I'm, I'm comfortable with that, while others disagree. So that's 
kind of some sometimes we end up there right and that's okay as well because people usually get something out of these debates yeah but in if, fact yeah? I, I would say that you know there's sort of two different ways of coming at this problem one way of coming at the problem is sort of a rehabilitationist approach is to say can we rehabilitate humanism hmm. to fit the challenges of the 21st century and I would say, you know, there's a, a lot of good work in that area, trying to rehabilitate the concept. Hmm. Others like Haraway and Karen Burrard and, uh, and Catherine Hales, a lot of the feminist STS scholars hmm. say, no, we've really got to rethink our own identity outside the box of humanism. Hmm. And I don't think either of these is necessarily right against the other. I, I, don't, th I don't think it's a matter of, of right versus wrong. I think it's a, hmm. it's a, a matter of strategy. Hmm. Um, you can look at it like out, out of politics. Do you have a revolution which changes the political structure or do you reform? Hmm. And you can see in human history, we've done both. Hmm. And each has worked or not worked as the case may be. But I think we see that in the academic world right now. It's two different ways of trying to resolve the challenges of human centrism and hmm. the effects it has had on our world. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, which brings us also kind of straight into the third uh, objection or the challenge that I have today, because robot rights could be seen as kind of a, a larger part of a larger historical process in which rights for increasing number of entities, groups have become relevant. However, saying that robot rights is part of this diminishes and disturbs the battles for equal rights for women, LGBT people, different ethnic groups, for example. You get these kinds of arguments that kind of bolting robot rights onto women rights is some kind of is is an outrage and kind of detracts from these real battles. So that's kind of why what something some yeah, that's kind of one of the arguments. And some would probably liken it to kind of a vindication of the rights of women, right? That came. Mm -hmm. And then right after, someone wrote kind of a, vind a vindication for the right of brutes, right? Just to right. ridicule this. That's not what you're doing with robot rights. But some, some kind of perceive this agenda is some, as something similar, I think. So instead of robot rights, some ask, let's talk human welfare instead, right? Because kind of the, this detracts from real issues that real minorities and real groups of people are experiencing today because we don't have equal rights for all humans. So instead of kind of broadening this kind of discussion of rights even more, let's focus on this. What would you say to that kind of argument? Yeah, and it's an important question, obviously, and it, it really you know is something that needs to be grappled with and, and dealt with seriously. Hmm. Um, but I would say that the argument that is made um, is often an argument by insiders against efforts to expand the circle of moral inclusion. And this is something that was utilized by those opposing women's rights, by mm. those opposing the rights of African slaves in the American South, by those opposing the rights of animals and the rights of nature. So it's using a rhetorical move that I think it borrows from the very problematic history mm. that is trying to be challenged. And Mary Wollstonecraft knew this, right? She wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Women. She knew that the insiders would try to stop Mm. this expansion. And so she pitched her vindication of the rights of women at an audience of the people who were in power, the insiders, mm. who had the ability to decide to open up the circle of moral inclusion or to shut it down. And this is something that, you know, is played out in the pamphlet wars um, that occur, uh, you know, after the time of, of her publication of that manifesto. 
And this is because ethics, no matter how altruistic or virtuistic it appears, is always about politics. It's always about power. Hmm. I think, um, you know, for this reason, power is actually the third rail of ethics. It is what allows ethics to exert its influence, but it's also the thing that we want to avoid. Hmm. We don't want to talk about the power. We hmm. just want to talk about the altruism. We want to talk about the virtue. But there really is political pressure behind a lot of these decisions. And Thomas Birch, an environmental philosopher who you may know, has explained it this way. He said, the extension of rights to any excluded population always presumes a set of insiders who have the power to extend rights mm -hmm. to incorporate or encompass the previously excluded populations. So trying to marginalize or suppress talk of the expansion of rights to other kinds of others, the natural environment, artifacts, robots, space aliens, whatever you want to call it, can only be accomplished by occupying a place of privilege and power that was challenged by previous efforts in the expansion of rights to these disenfranchised communities. Hmm. So I find, it's, I find it just a little weird that you would operationalize the same rhetorical gesture to try to protect something that had already disenfranchised them to begin with. So that, hmm. that's one thing I would say. Hmm. The other thing I would say is the shift from rights talk to welfare talk is troubling to me. Hmm. And that's because rights is about the powers, privileges, claims, and immunities of an individual being recognized by those in power. Welfare is paternalistic. Welfare is where those in power say, well, you're weaker than we are. Therefore, we will extend to you certain sorts of paternalistic protections. We have animal welfare, child welfare, etc. And I think focusing on rights is actually crucial because it actually recognizes that it is a distribution um, among equals as opposed to a paternalistic uh, imposition of uh, sort of, I grant you something um, for your, your protection, which mm. I, I think is, is for, in my mind, it just sounds a little too paternalistic uh, to be uh, you know, useful. Mm. And based on what we've been talking about before, if, this, uh, if there is some kind of utilitarian argument saying that kind of... Uh, Robot rights, uh, to a certain degree, are necessary in order to promote kind of welfare in general. There is kind of this kind of argument to be made as well. I think that we need to discuss and understand these issues in order to kind of focus on human welfare as well. Not that that's the kind of focus you have, but there is an argument there as well. Because kind of not understanding these issues runs us into risks of, yeah, unsustainable social institutions, as you said. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd say anytime we challenge our expectations, our presumptions, our traditions of defining rights, mm. we open up the possibility of being more inclusive. We open up the possibility of being more just. Mm. And whether that has come, and you, you can see this historically, the animal rights movement was really criticized by people who were engaged in the civil rights movement because they said, well, how can you talk about animals when there's other human beings who don't yet have full human rights? But instead of animal rights dis dis detracting from human civil rights, that conversation actually opened up the opportunity mm. to have a much more robust discussion about the social affordances that rights make available and actually empower that other conversation in ways that don't directly relate to animals, but indirectly relate to the extension of rights to previously excluded populations. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, uh, if you take that into the kind of last um, area here, because this relates sort of 
to the notion that there is some kind of relative gain here, relative power here. If more entities get rights, then each previous entity kind of who had rights will get less welfare, for example. There is this kind of logic involved, as I kind of hear you now and as I see this. So um, some say that this is a distraction, right? And that is a dangerous one, and I kind of established the argument here. Um, some say that this is kind of, uh, and I quote uh, this article, I won't mention who wrote it because they don't really be, don't want, even want to be involved in this debate, right? So that, that's fine. But they said that this is focused on first world, uh, world problems at the expense of urgent ethical concerns. And I kind of normally object to this position as I believe kind of academic freedom is important and that the issue is both relevant and important. That's kind of because I, that's why I write about it. But if you take the following argument that I kind of believe some of these opponents are taking they kind of state first of all that it's possible to rank ethical bads that there are some kind of challenges that are more worthy of attention than others and then they go on to some kind of uh, scientific activity is kind of a scarce good and david gunkel can't really research everything right so he should perhaps focus on the important things the worst uh, bads and also public attention is a scarce good. So as soon as David Gunkel goes on to Twitter and kind of talks about robot rights, there will be less attention paid to real issues of other human beings' rights, right? So, uh, and then we could kind of jump to this kind of science uh, or debates which detracts from combating the worst ethical bads should not be conducted. And this, this is kind of, maybe that was a messy presentation of the argument, but that's kind of how I feel the argument goes sometime. How, how would you kind of respond to that? Yeah, there's a number of ways of responding to it. I know that you and Ed, Eduard uh, Fosh uh, Villaronga talked about it in the uh, essay you wrote together for hmm. uh, Morals and Machines. And you refer to it as the great chain of ethics, which I yeah. think is a really good phrase to describe this, this idea that we can rank the ethical challenges, that we can say, for example, that systemic racism is a more urgent matter than mm. protecting animals, and that protecting animals is a more urgent matter than solving climate change. It's, you know, we can sort of rank these ethical challenges for ourselves. Mm. And this means that really the argument that's being constructed is that attention is limited, mm. right? We, we can't attend to everything at all times. And therefore, researchers should prioritize the more important issues and work on those first, and mm. then maybe move on to these other marginal things. And I think as you and Eduardo point out, this amounts to kind of conflating ethics and politics, because it doesn't recognize the political gesture that's involved here or the expression of power that is mm. behind this. And in fact, this argument relies on what many logicians have formalized as a logical fallacy something they call the fallacy of relative privation, mm. or also known as the appeal to worse problems, or mm. not as bad as, right? Um, but I don't want to get into the logical uh, business because that will get, take us far afield from the more important mm. stuff. Mm. The more important stuff, I think, is this. Anytime someone asserts that this thing is more important than another thing, it is a gesture of power. And I think uh, recently there was an article written by uh, Karina uh, Chicano in the New York New Yorker or the New York Times Magazine, um, in which she said that you know this is a gesture that we see operationalized a lot in uh, politics, and she wrote especially about Trump era politics, mm. this idea that you could declare what you care about as the center of the world and everything else is marginal to it, and she said you know that says more about the person making that declaration. It says more about their position of power, their privilege, their assumptions than it does about the item they are addressing. 
And she worries about the expression of power, who has the power to declare these things? Um, how do we um, justify uh, an expression of you know, this kind of uh, assumption that this is the most important thing out, out of everything? Mm -hmm. um, it's really about sort of attention management. And really there's two ways to do attention management. You can say that thing that you're working on, I'm not interested in that and therefore I'm not gonna bother myself. Mm -hmm. Or you can say, that thing that you're working on, I don't care about, I find it unimportant, therefore you should shut up. And I think that is an expression that puts the onus and the responsibility on the other and not on yourself mm. for you know, controlling or uh, managing your own attention. But what I wanna do is um, lastly, focus on this first world problems aspect that mm. uh, is often brought up that, you know, robot rights is a first world problem and therefore there's more important things for the rest of the global society to worry about. And we shouldn't really put any attention there because it's a distraction from the more pressing urgent needs that human mm. society faces. Mm. And this, the first world problems criticism is actually a variant of the fallacy of relative privation. Um, but we should recognize that extending moral and social status to non-human entities, including artifacts, has been an important part of both indigenous and non-Western cultures, especially those that have a tradition or some version of animism as mm. part of their belief system. Robot rights has the effect of reintroducing many of these ideas, challenging dominant European Christian ways of thinking by opening up first world metaphysics and ethics to other ways of responding to and taking responsibility for others. So mm. I would say, yes, robot rights is a first world problem. It is a problem for first world ways of thinking. Mm. It opens up the space to challenge first world ideologies, first world cosmologies. And why is that important for us right here, right now? Global climate change. Mm. We need to challenge the usual way of doing business. And one of the ways that we can do that is opening the vista for ideas by which we engage with the world in which we live. And so mm -hmm. I think, yeah, the first world problems critique, it's, it's a valid critique, but it's a critique, I think, that actually speaks to the privilege and the power of first world ways of thinking. And that has to be challenged. And I think robot rights is one way in which that is materializing. Yeah. And from based on what we've kind of been discussing before, also kind of issues are related as well. So kind of the notion of robot rights isn't just about robots, right? It's about how we figure out rights uh, fundamentally. And we might say that there's enough attention to go around. Um, we might, <laughs> we need not, but uh, we could also say that kind of it's important for kind of long-term consequences, which we don't really know, right? Just challenge the weird notion that it's possible to rank ethical bads and know which ethical bads are bad kind of in the future as well. That's kind of a wild card for me, at least. So I figure it's good that people think about a lot of various stuff that might seem unimportant right now. But yeah. So, but if you change gears here and consider the future, kind of where do you see kind of the robot rights debate going now? Will some be able to suppress it? Will it be kind of a marginal endeavor for academics like us battling it out on Twitter, for example? Or will this become a broader and kind of more mainstream issue? Or will corporations be able to actually take this kind of power grab and take this over and make this into their cause? Perhaps kind of as robots become more sophisticated, perhaps if Pascal is right, that there are probably full uh, corporate interests here, that kind of, yeah. And what do, you, what do you think about the future of robot rights, the debate here? 
Yeah, so I think whether we decide to engage this or not, decisions are going to be made. Hmm. Decisions will have to be made about how we integrate these artifacts into our world, how our legal systems responds to these opportunities and challenges, how our moral thinking responds to these opportunities and the challenges. Uh, state legislatures and courts are going to need to make decisions about how to resolve problems. It's a very practical question, and they are going to approach it in a very pragmatic, problem-solving way, but decisions will be made. So, I, you know, Pascal and others might be content to let the powerful, influential corporations, organizations, governments, etc., make these decisions on our behalf. I'm not. I think we need to be involved. I think we need to be actively involved in these conversations mm. and contribute to the debate and the decision-making that is occurring in this area. I think democratic self-governance requires active involvement in the evolution of both moral and legal standards. And each of us has a role to play in that process. So we need to get out in front of the problem before it becomes a problem. And I think the best way to ensure the best possible outcome, outcomes that serve our needs, our interests, and protects our values, is not by ignoring or suppressing the conversation, but by directly engaging in it to see what is possible, to see what consequences there could be, and to help develop better decision-making that really is looking out for our future and for the future of our children and our children's children downstream. Mm. Yes, yeah, because in closing then, you kind of... Um... Do you have any ideas on how to kind of make this happen? Because, uh, yeah, we're talking about kind of a democratic agenda here, kind of a democratic discussion and debate and getting a discourse going. Uh, but kind of real engagement as well between kind of the proponents and opponents uh, in kind of robot rights as a research agenda as well. Kind of, yeah, how do you see us kind of managing to get this debate past this kind of, you're wrong, you're wrong, this is just <laughs> stupid, don't, don't talk about this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, think about it. Nothing really happens if each side says you're wrong. No. If, if each side says you're wrong, I'm not talking to you. That closes down this opportunity. This closes down the conversation. It closes down shared discovery that is going to be in the interest of all of us. And so opening this up and, and having a broader, more engaged conversation, I think, is absolutely crucial. Um, in this area, in, in any area, whether you're a physicist, whether you're doing 14th century Italian poetry, the more diverse conversation you can have with the stakeholders, the better the results are. So the mm. question is, how do we facilitate this? Mm. How do we make available this conversation, this dialogue, this debate to actually transpire? So I think three things are really crucial, um, and I'll just spell them out and I'll break them down a little bit. The first thing is, I think we've all got to learn to be curious and not judgmental. The second thing is, I think we've got to keep it focused on the research and not make it personal. Mm. And thirdly, I think we've got to recognize and value difference and diversity and not assume that everybody's got to be doing the same thing in the same way, mm. right? So mm. the first one, be curious, not judgmental. This actually comes from Ted Lasso, a TV show, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and Ted Lasso actually misquotes uh, Walt Whitman. He says, you know, be curious, not judgmental, as Walt Whitman says. Walt mm. Whitman never said that. Um, <laughs> I've talked to my uh, English literature colleagues, and they said, no, that's not a Whitman quote at all. <laughs> Irrespective of whether it's a misquote or a, a, a appropriate quote, um, I think the sort of Midwestern wisdom 
that is contained in that statement is really important. Hmm. If we approach a problem with curiosity, wanting to know more, if we approach other researchers with curiosity, wanting to know why they say this or why they have resolved this question in this way, I think we learn something. If we approach it from a position of judgment, we've already decided. We've already decided in advance that we have a certain position of correctness and they must be wrong or hmm. they're a challenge to our assumed doxa, our orthodoxy. And I think curiosity is a much better way to do science than judgment. And the scientific method is all about curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, the reason you run an experiment is to either validate or invalidate a previous found insight. It's not about judging it. It's about doing the work to be curious, to see whether or not it holds. Mm -hmm. And I think curiosity and ethics is a really good thing because it can help us actually approach each other in a spirit of good faith effort to understand what's actually going on and why it's important. Hmm. Secondly, one way to keep the egos out of this is to don't target individuals, target published research. Hmm. Talk about what's in the researched publication, not about who did the work. Hmm. Um, I use this with my students all the time, especially when we're doing critical work that's creative. If you say, oh, you know, this thing is not as effective, I think, in this particular context as it could be, and you might want to try this, you get better results than if you say, you're an idiot. You shouldn't be doing this. Hmm. Um, so I think targeting the, the work and not getting into the ad hominem kind of stuff is a really good way to make sure that these debates are talking about substance and hmm. actually resolving crisis and problem. Hmm. Lastly, difference and diversity should be seen as something that is valuable. We all come at this from a different place. We all come at this with different sets of values, with different research methodologies, with even different vocabularies. That's not a bad thing. And this circles back to where this whole thing began about the interdisciplinarity of this entire endeavor. We've really got to value these differences because even different vocabularies open up different conceptual space. Uh, you know, the proverbial example here is this idea that the Inuit language has 40 different words for snow, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's an anthropological statement that was made in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, what happens is different words open up different conceptual apparatus. Mm -hmm. They give you a different way of seeing the world. There are different lenses by which to see things. So just because a different researcher uses a different vocabulary or different methodologies doesn't mean that their way of doing things is somehow wrong or not as good as your own. It means that there's an opportunity to see things differently. Mm. And in that spirit of being curious, seeing things through the eyes of someone else can often help you see your own work and your own endeavors in brand new ways that open vistas that you never even knew were possible. And I find in my own experience, attempts to grapple with the rather complicated terminology that are used by legal scholars, for example, mm -hmm. um, initially might seem alienating. But if you really try to immerse yourself in it and begin to understand how that researcher is approaching the subject matter and seeing this material, you begin to see things in a new way. And you begin to see new opportunities for your own way of thinking about what this means and why it's all important. So those are the three things. Curiosity, mm -hmm. don't make it personal, and celebrate the diversity.
Yeah, it sounds like good ideas. Let's see if we can get there. Uh, and another problem is perhaps, uh, I might add, that kind of uh, doing this on Twitter is uh, sometimes a bit difficult because oh. of kind of the, the fundamental differences or difficulties involved in the concepts and words and different meanings, as you just said, right? So that's kind of one extreme where it's kind of somewhat difficult to get really into this. And the other extreme is kind of the somewhat un, uh, inaccessible hundreds of thousands of words, books and published research, right? So getting this kind of middle arena as well, that's more accessible for some of those interested in going into the debate, but not really going into it in terms of research might also be kind of interesting to pursue and see if we can find. Yeah, I think all of us as researchers mm. have to take seriously the community outreach aspect of this. Mm. Mm. We have to recognize that we are public intellectuals, whether we want to be or not, mm. and that we do have responsibilities to communicate clearly um, in ways that are accessible to others. And we're learning, right? I mean, we're all sort of learning as we go through. And you can see uh, various attempts on Twitter, especially as mm -hmm. these debates develop um, with, you know, trying out something that maybe doesn't work as well as something else. But mm. I believe and I hope that we're all evolving in a direction of recognizing that this is not something we can cordon off in some ivory tower and just talk to ourselves at academic conferences, mm. that the, the conversation does have to be wide and it does have to include those outside the academy, those practitioners involved in making the technologies and, you know, governmental leaders and, and decision makers. All of us have to be able to talk to these diverse audiences to be able to make sure that the work that we're doing is reaching the right set of eyeballs and helping to shape the future that we want to create together. Yeah, that is arguably kind of one argument for discussing these issues and doing the outreach that you're talking about too, in order to prevent some kind of corporate power grab, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So in closing then, we can kind of use the time I asked for here, but thank you so much for taking the time to join TDS Lowdown. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I really hope we can get you on the show at another point. I know there's a lot of different things I want to discuss with you, if it's possible. So thank you very much for your time and I hope uh, the listeners as well have kind of, um, yeah, not necessarily kind of learned that much, but kind of getting a little bit more insight into kind of why we think these issues are important, right? So thank you. No, thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things. But I think oftentimes these more sort of meta issues, um, uh, you know, laid on top of the, the research uh, mm. get sort of sidelined. And we don't really talk about the sort of process by which this research is transpiring and what it's doing and the way that we engage with it. So I think this kind of reflection, this kind of self-reflection is really crucial. And I appreciate you making the opportunity to sit down and talk about it. And I hope to hell one of these days we can meet in person and stop doing these things on Zoom. Most certainly. Thank <laughs> you so much, David. I'll talk to you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of TDS Lowdown. Please remember to subscribe and you can find this podcast on Twitter, TDS Lowdown, or you can go to tdslowdown.com. Thank you.